0: If you'll get your there should be a pew Bible nearby. And it will be on page. 978. Thank you. I couldn't hear. Page 978 in your pew Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, grab one of these. Should be one nearby. Page 978 in your pew Bible. It's Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11, Luke 15, beginning at verse 11, page 978 in your pew Bibles. Follow with me here. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him. Father I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants. Quick bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. By the way, as we begin here, uh, we do really enjoy having children in our service because we believe that all of this is is for kids just as much as adults. So kids, this is for you too. And uh, we do have some bulletin guides over here. If you wanted to go grab one of those, where you it'll help you to follow along with the sermon and what we're talking about this morning. So you could just grab one of those on the table over there. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we we come to your word now as we've prayed to you and we've sung to you. We've heard your your word read to us and It called us into worship, and yet now we need you to speak deeply into our hearts and to use your word by the power of your spirit, as you say, like a scalpel upon our hearts. Because your word is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it pierces all the way down to our souls. We need that this morning. No matter where we're at, whether we're cold or distant, distracted, or even eager to hear for you this morning. We need you. We need you. You must come and speak. So would you do it? Would you open our ears and our hearts to hear from you so that we would see who you are and what you've done? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're beginning. uh, Today we're going to begin a three-part series on the gospel. Uh, After that we'll move into our fall series. But I like to do this uh, periodically uh, to just kind of get back to what we believe is really at the core of what shapes us as a church. We talk a lot about the gospel, which kids, what does gospel mean? Good news. All right. Hey, Right here. Preacher's kid. It means good news. And we believe that the gospel is not just the basic information of the Christian life that you need to get in order to get in. That's often what we think in our culture. Like it's just the the basic ABCs kind of stuff you need to get you need to know to get to get into the Christian life, to get into heaven, but then after that you move on to different things to grow. You grow by you know trying harder and white knuckling and all that stuff, but we actually believe, because we believe this is what God's word teaches, that the gospel is the power of God to change us. Not just to save us initially, but to to literally change us. And so the gospel really is something that we never move beyond. So we're going to do a three-part series just on drilling down into the beauty and the uniqueness of the gospel. And that's what we're talking about today. The uniqueness of the gospel. Now one of the things that Jesus was always doing is that he was using stories to teach. It's primarily Jesus' method. And you know a story has a way of penetrating your heart in the way that other things don't. So, for everybody, and kids too, I want to encourage you as we get into this story, let yourself enter into the story. That's how you're supposed to, to hear these, to imagine yourself there, to imagine yourself being a part of this story. And Jesus tells this story, this parable, as one of the most clear pictures of the uniqueness of the gospel. And that's why I wanted to look at it today. So, as he starts off and he says this uh, a man had two sons, so he's going to tell us about the first son and his interaction with the father, and then he's going to get to the second son. But as we meet the first son, there's a number of things in the parable that are easy to just kind of jump right over. Uh, a number of things, uh, details in the story that are meant to really just rock you and stun you with what's happening in the story. There's this scholar, this New Testament scholar, his name's Ken Bailey. And he had studied the New Testament for most of his life. And he decided for about 20 years to move to Palestine, to the Middle East. And he he spent 20 years there doing research. You know what he would do for his research? He would go around meeting people in Palestine and he would tell the parables of Jesus as a way to see how would people in that culture hear these parables. And he learned so much about so many details that really stood out about the parables that sometimes for us in the West, we can just miss. A couple of those here is that whenever the son goes to the father initially, and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate, that that would have been an enormous insult, an enormous humiliation for the father. That culture was very patriarchal. Uh, It was very tribal. The way that people would see themselves, what, what would be most valuable is not your your individual needs or your individual desires, but rather the family unit as a whole, that you wouldn't primarily see yourself as an individual, which we do in the West very heavily, but you would see yourself as being a part of a family. And the patriarch, the father, the grandfather, that, that father figure of the family was, was deserving of the highest level of honor in the family. But yet what we learn here right off the bat is that this younger son has gone to his father and he's asked for his inheritance before the father has died. It's a tremendous insult. It's a way of the son saying, I don't really care about my relationship with you. You are merely useful to me. I want what belongs to me. Give me my share of the estate. You're essentially, you're dead to me. Now the shocker in the story here is that this Middle Eastern patriarch doesn't beat and then disown his son in the story. Rather, we're told that the father goes about dividing his estate, which would have involved, in that day, most of your assets wouldn't be at the local bank. It would have been tied up in property. So this father goes through the process of selling off his assets to send away his son with his share of the estate. Tremendous humiliation. So the son goes off, this younger son, he goes off, and we're told, into the far country. And he squanders, he blows it all in wild living. And after the party's over, he hits rock bottom. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know what that feels like. To just go off and to go your own way and to find yourself at rock bottom. You got nothing left and the fun's over. That's what happens to the younger son. And it gets so bad, we're told that he ends up feeding pigs. Now, if you know anything, else, anything at all about Jews, you know that Jews and pigs don't go together. This is not a very happy ending here. This is as bad as it gets, to be in a pig feeding the pigs. And yet, he's hungry. There's a famine in the land. And then he gets an idea. Wait a minute. How many of my father's hired men have food to eat? I know. I'll go back and maybe, just maybe, maybe there's a shot, maybe an outside chance. He realizes at this point how deeply he's offended his father. But he thinks maybe he'll just let me be like a servant. At least then I can I can eat. So he, he rehearses this story. He, he rehears, rehearses this speech. Did you get that in the story where, where he says, I'll go back and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He, he gets together what he's going to say to his father to show his father that I really mean business, that I'm not going to do this again, that I, I hate myself for this. You know, he gets a plan together to show his father how he's going to beat himself up and show him I'm really serious. So He gets his speech together, and he goes home. And then we're told, while he was still a long way off. That's an important detail here. You see, the reality is, he's not even close to home, and his father sees him. What does that mean? It means the father has come after him. The father has come in search of the son who so deeply offended him. He's come after him. And the father sees the son before he sees the father, and when he sees him, we're told he sees his son and is filled with compassion. What's interesting is that same phrase, those two Greek words, are used over and over and over in the book of Luke to describe Jesus. Go through and look at the Gospels. How often does it say Jesus saw a person? So Jesus would would lock into a person, and when he saw them, it's like he would see all the way into their heart, and he was filled with compassion. But yet here it's the Father who sees the Son who's offended him. He's filled with compassion, and he runs to his son. He embraces him. And he kisses him. What a picture. In light of all that the son has done. The son tries to get into the speech here. Father I've sinned against heaven and against you. You know he's probably stunned in the moment. But he, he starts to get his speech out. And did you notice the father interrupts the speech. I love that little detail there. It's a little picture that the father The father doesn't need the speech. He doesn't need the promises. Because the father's response is not based upon how sorry the son is. It's not based upon how much he hates himself for what he's done. It's actually not based upon the son in any way at all. You see that? It is entirely based upon the father's great affection and love for the son. The father interrupts him and he says, quick, to his servants... Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine has come home. He was lost and is found. The picture here is not only that the son has been forgiven of what he's done. There was a tremendous offense to the father. There was one, the blowing of the inheritance. But also just the, the essentially the utter rejection of his father in that relationship. Not only was that forgiven, part of what Jesus is showing in the picture is that it is a full restoration to the status he had before as the son. That, that's what's meant by put the best robe upon him. What is the best robe of the family? It's the father's robe. The robe was, a, it was a, an ornament of, of dignity, of status. Put my robe upon it. Put a ring on his finger. The ring is the family ring. He, he, what is he doing here? He is not only forgiving the son. He is returning him to the status of his beloved son. He is returning him to the status as one of his very only sons. The thing that he had rejected. The thing that he had cast off. Not only is there forgiveness for what he's done. He restores him to the full rights of. Of a son. Bring the fattened calf. And kill it. Let's throw a party. The fattened calf in that day. Would have been a great source of wealth. For the family. You would save the fattened calf. Only for the most special of occasions. This would have been the party of a decade. Something you save for a really special occasion. And yet the father. Says get the calf ready. We're throwing a party. Do you see the extravagance. Of the father's love here. that's, That's the picture that Jesus is painting. In spite of the son's rejection of the father, his sin, his throwing off all of his father's love, all of his father's goodness, the extravagance of the father's grace. That's what he's wanting to show you. Is that how you see the father? Our father in heaven? Is that the picture you have, especially... If you know what it's like to blow it. Especially if you know what it's like to find yourself at rock bottom. Especially if you know what it's like to feel like I've just blown it too big. Or to even, I don't know if you do this, you probably do. I know I do all the time. When I blow it, I get my speech together for God. You know, I'm saying, all right, I'm going to go back. And I'm going to make sure he knows I'm serious this time. Because I'm not going to go, I'm just not going to go you know, nonchalant back to the Lord. He needs to know I'm serious and I'm going to beat myself up. So if I feel horrible and I feel really good and guilty, finally God will be like, okay, all right, all right, I see you're serious, you can come back. You see the extravagance is utterly apart from even our response. Is that how you see the Father? I know in my own story, and I've shared this many times, when I first became a believer, I had become a believer. I had embraced Jesus. I had come to the point where I believed all my past sin had been paid for. And that was enough for a couple months. And then you know what happened? I went right back to the pigsty. And I started to struggle again with some of those old patterns of sin. And, and what happened in that moment was really critical. I did exactly what this son did. I tried to clean up. I, I literally thought thought that God's not going to take me back. He's not going to keep taking me back. I've got to show him I'm serious. I've got to put together some real obedience. You know, I'd be like the son where I'd come back and say, look, look at all the good that I've done. Will you take me back now? But then somebody came into my life, and he began to help me to understand the riches and the depths of the gospel of grace, where I began to see the father's really like this. Not just know it in my head and be able to tell somebody else, but I began to believe it for myself. That's what began to change my life. Now, I would imagine there's many of us here today that cannot imagine the Father is really like that. Maybe you can believe it for other people. Can you relate to that? Oh, I believe he's got grace for you and you and you, but for me, no, no, no. It's too ugly. My sin is too ugly. I've gone too far. It can't be that extravagant. And yet, Jesus is inviting us to see the Father waits with the robe, with the kiss. Do you want the Father's kiss? And I imagine in our county, there are countless people who are like the Son and cannot fathom the Father waiting with the robe, with the ring, with the sandals. That there's a feast waiting. They cannot fathom. It's an incredible picture, but there's another son. There's another son in the parable, and oftentimes whenever we see the parable, we focus on the first son. Many times this is called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, there is a prodigal son there, but that's not what Jesus calls this parable. He calls it the parable of the two sons. So how do you understand this? How do you understand both sons? What's key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is knowing who he's speaking to. You see that at the beginning of chapter 15? This parable is told in a series of parables. This is like the capstone parable. When he's talking to two groups of people. Look at what it says in chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes and eats with them. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. You see what he's showing us? Understanding the audience is key. There was two groups of people that Jesus is telling this parable to. And in fact, it was almost always, anytime Jesus is anywhere, we're told that there was these two groups of people. There were the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes, the people who had thrown off morality who had decided that they were going to go their own way, oftentimes, ironically, in a family, this is the younger sibling, right? That often works out that way. They've, they've just made a mess of their life. At some point, they've said, you know what, I, I don't like authority. I don't want to live under authority. I want to go my own way. I want to find fulfillment in my own way. And oftentimes, that leads to an emptiness in their life. That's the tax collectors and sinners. And that's who the younger brother is representing in the parable. But there was always another group of people, and it was the religious people, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, the people who had, who had embraced traditional morality, and they'd, they, they were always praying, and they were always devoted to God, and they were always going to church, and they, they knew their theology all the way inside and out. They knew it all. They were utterly devoted to God. And always you had these two groups of people around Jesus. Now, here's what's ironic here. The immoral people, the tax collectors, the sinners, they flocked to Jesus. Even said there, they were gathering around him. They were drawn to Jesus magnetically. And yet, the religious people, the people who are supposed to be waiting on Jesus, were infuriated by Jesus. They were repulsed by Jesus. Do you see this parable is for them? That's who the older brother is. The younger brother represents the sinners and the people who had blown it big. And the older brother represents the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious people. What is he trying to say to them? In fact, this parable is more for them than anybody else. Look at what he says. Just as we look at this picture... Of the older brother, we've seen this action with the father and the younger son. And then in verse 25, we get this shift to a new episode in the story. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. He's out there. He's been working hard. He's been doing his duty, coming in from a long day's work. This guy was always doing the right thing. Very careful to obey all of his father's wishes. Very very careful to be a hardworking person and, and to be morally upright and, and, and always concerned with doing what was right. Very devoted in being religious and into following God's law. And he's out in the field and he's coming in from a hard day's work and he hears a little music and dancing. That's odd. And he asked one of the servants, Hey, what, what's happening? What's happening down at the house? And the servant doesn't know the the trap he's walking into, of course. And he says, Oh, didn't you hear? Your brother's home. And the father, in his joy, he's killed the fattened calf. He's home safe and sound. But the older brother doesn't respond with much joy, does he? We're told that he is angry and resentful and refuses to go into the party. He starts pouting. And so the father has to leave the party and he actually goes out to plead with his older son. It's another one of those cultural realities for the the host of the party, especially a party like this, to have to leave the party and to go out and plead with his pouting older son to come into the party. Well, now it's the older brother's turn to humiliate the father. It's a humiliation. And the father is pleading with him. And look at his response. And in his response... Jesus is really diagnosing the heart. Look at what he says to his father. Verse 29, he answered his father, look, he doesn't even address his father respectfully. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never, and yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What do we see in his heart? He's angry. And his response gives away the fact that he believes he deserves something from the Father. You see, he he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. See, he gives something away there. You see, all of his obedience to the Father, all of his good living, while on the outside it looked great, it probably looked like his devotion as a son and his love for his father, but in that moment it kind of gets out. That it was really all a dutiful drudgery for him. It wasn't about a love for the father. It was about getting something for himself. See, his self-righteous pride. He believes because I have done this, the father owes me this. Everything that he did, he did as a way to put the father in his debt. It was ultimately for him. It's an illustration that helped I think, helps us to get our hands around this. Uh, Tim Keller shares, shares this in his book, Prodigal God. Once upon a time, there was a gardener in a kingdom. And this gardener grows the biggest carrot he's ever grown in his life. And he's just so overjoyed, he, may, he, he decides to take it to the king. So he comes into the king's court, and he presents it before the king. And he says, oh, king. This is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. And I want to just offer it to you as a sign of my love and my respect and honor for you as a king. And the king's kind of moved by this. You know, he sees just the, the love and the devotion of his subject here. And the gardener turns to leave and the king says, wait, wait, wait. I've got a piece of land right next to your land. I want to give that to you. So you can continue to, to harvest and to cultivate the land for the good of our kingdom. The stunned by that. He wouldn't expect anything, and he goes home rejoicing. But there's a nobleman in the king's court, and he kind of sees what's just taken place, and he thinks to himself, Wow, if that's what the king gives for a carrot, what would he give for something far more nice? So The next day, that noble comes into the court, and he's leading a fine black stallion. He presents it to the king. He says, Oh, king, I breed horses. This is the greatest black stallion I've ever bred. And I want to offer it to you as a sign of my love and honor for you as my king. But the king perceives his heart. And the king just simply says, thank you. You may go. The nobles, the nobleman's stunned. What? He starts to go off and the king says, wait a minute. Can I explain to you what just happened? The gardener was giving me the carrot. You have given yourself the horse. You see the dynamic there? The horse wasn't for the king. That's the difference between the two. From the outside, they were both bringing something to present to the, to the king. In fact, the nobleman's gifts seemed far more impressive. But there's a fundamental difference in the heart. The gardener was actually giving it to the king while the nobleman was giving it to the himself that's what Jesus is trying to tell the religious people all that you're doing is ultimately for you not for the father you know what the chilling reality that this parable shows us I think it's even hard to really get this is that there's two ways to be lost there's two ways to be alienated from the father Now, one of those is very obvious. I mean, it's very easy to know that if someone decides, I'm going to go my own way, I don't want a Lord in my life, I want to be my own Lord, and I'm just going to pursue my own happiness in the way that I want to. And that's very common. I mean, we see that all the time. I mean, some of us have been in that place in our life where we said, I just want to find my own joy. I'm not going to follow God. I'm going to go my own way. And that's a way to be alienated from the Father. It's a way to be lost. And everybody knows that. That's kind of common sense. But there's another way to be lost. By being good. By doing all the right things. There's a, there's a way to be lost and alienated from the Father. And yet on the outside, look like you're doing it all right. Look like you're keeping all the rules. And yet Jesus is trying to show us. You are just as lost is the one who throws it all off. Now that is incredibly hard to get our hands around or even to really believe that. Why? Because so deeply down we believe that the gospel is essentially the same thing as religion. That that the way to be restored to the Father is just to do the right things. To be a good person. To keep the law. And if you do that you'll be saved. And Jesus is saying your goodness is a Barrier to God. So hard to get our hands around that. And for so many of us, it's hard to even see how our goodness is a barrier to the Father. Because it it blinds you to your desperate need of grace. You see what Jesus, and Jesus was constantly teaching this. that, That what he has come to do, and that the gospel is not... It's not irreligion. That's pretty obvious. It's not just do whatever you want to do. God loves you anyway. And it's not religion. Like, get your life together. Do the right thing. And If you're good enough, you'll go to heaven. Jesus said both of those ways are a way to be lost. And yet, the gospel that I've come to bring is an entirely unique way to relate to the Father. And what is that way? You come into the Father's family, into his feast, by pure grace alone. There's no way to deserve it. There's no way to... Earn your way into it. There's no way to bring any kind of merit on your own behalf. It's entirely a gift. It's entirely based upon the work of another. And yet, as you come into the father's family, as you come into that status as his son, your heart begins to be changed by grace so that you want to obey. The gospel is utterly unique, both to to irreligion and to religion. Both are ultimately, when you boil them all down, the same thing. They're both ways of avoiding God as Savior. Well, it's obvious for the, for the going off and going your own way. It's very obvious how that's about control. It's about, I'm going to be my own Savior. But the being good and keeping all the rules is much harder to see how really, deep down, is just as much about retaining control of your life. Because you see, if I obey the, all the rules, then God owes me. It's got to go my way. He's got to bless me. It's just a way of putting God in your debt. Of retaining control. So I think we got to ask a, a few really important questions. Which brother are you? When you see the two, which do you more relate to? I imagine for some of us it's that, that tendency to just run off and go your own way. And part of what Jesus is saying is you see the father with the robe inviting you into the feast. But yet some of us might relate a little bit more to the elder brother. Now, it's harder to see that, you see. It's kind of obvious if you're like the younger brother, right? I mean, it's, you can see it. the other people uh, all the world can see it when, when your kind of rebellion is your, is your deep bent. It's a whole lot harder to see if you're like the elder brother. Because you see, self-righteousness and pride, it blinds itself from its victim. You cannot see it. You know the Pharisees had no idea that they were self-righteous? I mean, we kind of see it as we're looking in on them. But they thought they were in. So how do you tell if you're like the older brother? Well, how do you respond to people who just can't seem to get their act together? How do you tend to respond to people who just kind of throw it all off and go their own way? You know, sometimes if we just look at the culture, these, also these two groups of people kind of, they kind of uh, fit in with liberal and conservative, right? So liberals in our culture are kind of those that are like, no authority in my life, I'm going to go my own way. And yet the conservatives often tend to be the ones that are personal morality. We look down on those others over there, incredibly critical and in dis- and, and looking down in spite and do you do you see that in your life and here's I think a real telltale sign what do you do when things don't go your way in life you see if you're an elder brother and your life is not turning out the way that you want you are going to feel cheated by God you see because you worked hard you have slaved You've done everything the right way. And yet, when the Father doesn't come through by taking care of my life and making it turn out the way that I want, you feel cheated. You're not holding up your end of the bargain. And so if you're an elder brother, you cannot suffer with joy. It's one of the telltale ways to know. I imagine for, both, for many of us, we might be a little bit of both. That's certainly me. I kind of bounce back and forth. What do we need? We both need to be rescued by Jesus. By nature, we're all outside the Father's feast. And he longs for us to come in, and yet Jesus is the true elder brother who comes after us and brings us into the Father's embrace and kiss. Both younger brothers that blow it all big and those who think they have no need of grace. He pursues us both. Let me stop right there and just give us a few moments to interact and hear from each other. How does that strike you as you see the parable? Do you see how hard it really is to get this? That you can do all the right things and yet be just as lost as those who threw it off? Let's hear from each other. How does that strike you and what does that do in you as we go through the parable? I
1: Yeah.
0: Yes. Yes
1: know how that you know it it ends there
0: yeah Yeah, it ends in jesus it's like jesus ends it at the cliffhanger yeah almost as a way to 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 invite the pharisees to say how are you going to respond will you come to the party jesus was always trying to talk the pharisees into the party and they wouldn't come in
1: there's a, a verse two chapters later where he says when you've done everything i've commanded you you're to say we're worthless slaves. We only did our duty. Yeah. And I realize that, that most of most of uh probably uh well most of my Christian life, you know, what has been presented to me is either fear of punishment mm-hmm. or desire for reward. Yeah. You know, and that it's not Christianity.
0: Yeah. Grace is an entirely different motivator. More costly, I think. More costly motivator. Because if it's all by grace, then there's nothing he can't ask of me. If it's based That's right, he gets all the glory. If it's based on what I do, then there's only so much he can ask of me. If it's all by grace, my whole life belongs to him.
1: I think that um, I feel like I can see seasons in my life where I've been the older and younger brother. Uh-huh. But one of the things that really just jumped out at me when we were reading this passage was um, in verse 20 it said, But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he Mm -hmm. ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And I think that in whichever season that I'm in, I think I can really deceive myself that I need to really get my act together before I can kind of come before the Lord. And I think it was just a really beautiful picture that, like, God doesn't wait up at the house for me. You know, he he doesn't wait for me. I feel like I've been in a season of just sleepiness towards the things of God and it was just really beautiful to think like yeah. I can just I can just turn yes. turn back yeah um, it's just a really mm. sweet verse I think to be reminded that God yeah. doesn't wait <laughs> for us to arrive you,
0: know? you know, I think when you see that that's when worship flows in the heart just seeing that freedom and release that it's it's not about my goodness but it's about his grace and when that Penetrates the heart. It's like the immediate reaction is just worship and joy. Anybody else? Yeah, right, right. I mean it this time. I got to show God I mean it this time. I'm going to get my act together this time. Okay, let's pray together. We can keep talking about this after church that would be a great thing. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus. We we just don't see half of it. It's so hard to see the reality of our own hearts. It's so hard and we have so many distractions to insulate ourselves from the reality that we need to see, but seeing the reality What a gift, because it drives us to you. Whether we're younger brother or older brother, the goal is the kiss of the father. Would you destroy our pride that we would be a people who long for the father's kiss, his embrace, the robe? Would the robe be far more precious to us than the inheritance, than any of your blessings? Would you work in us? Let us be a community of people who are just enlivened by your grace. And and would that make us compassionate? Just let us be compassionate to broken people, to each other and to our county. In Christ's name we pray, amen.